Let's come now to the Word of God in prayer. Our Father, even as we've prayed, we come with sin-darkened hearts. But we come, too, with hearts washed clean by the blood of our Savior. So please help us to see Him and to understand Him and all He has for us and to love Him because of it. We ask this because we are so dependent on You and on Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have a Bible or if you want to take one of them, it's in the pew there in front of you. Turn please to John's Gospel. Chapter 4. This is the Word of God. I'll begin reading at verse 1, and I'll, I'll tell you when I skip a few verses. John's Gospel 4, verse 1. Now, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have, the one you now have, is not your husband. 
What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. And then there's this, well, I'm going to read the next couple of verses. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then the Lord Jesus has this conversation just amongst his disciples. And then we see in beginning at verse uh, 39, the effect that this conversation had in the lives of some other Samaritans. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed with them there three day, two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Okay, Bible quiz. You don't have to say anything or raise your hand. All right. But I got a Bible quiz for you. I can think of three, and there may be more. All right. Books in the Bible where the author tells you exactly why he wrote it. Okay. Somewhere in, in the book, he tells you exactly why. It's not kind of I'm some, some, some surmising that that's why he wrote it. But he, he straightforwardly says, that's why I wrote it. Can think of any? Okay, Luke is one. You know, dear, old Theoph- most excellent Theophilus. Remember how that begins? And of course, Luke's other book is another. He says, and that's Acts, where he says, I want to make sure you know what happened and I want you to know about this Lord Jesus. And that's why I wrote it. And the third that I could think of, and I hope there's some more you'll tell me at halftime here, uh, the third is John. John's Gospel. Take a look at, at chapter 20 of John's Gospel. John's Gospel, 
chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Now, this is right at the end of the book. Many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Two reasons. He's the Son of God. To show that, to demonstrate that. And that by believing in Him, we might have life. Now, that's what we see in John 4. Especially in John 4. As this Samaritan woman has this conversation with the Lord Jesus, this just comes flowing out. What we have here in John 4 is this woman in a very brief place, this woman's spiritual pilgrimage from darkness to light, from not knowing this Jesus to believing in Him to eternal life. Let's take a look at that then together and see the way this happens. So Jesus, we're... we're and his disciples were, were traveling through Samaria. There's lots of geography in this passage. I hope you picked that up. I'm sure you did. And, and he stops at Jacob's well. Now, at the time that John wrote the gospel, the town was called Sychar. If you go back hundreds of years, it was before this, it was called Shechem. So that's how we, we know about I mean, We know the well. We know where all this stuff is. And here they are. And the surroundings, which is perhaps why John gives them to us, were just filled with the truth of God. The surroundings themselves had a history that just screamed the grace of God to his people. This mountain in verse 20, where the, the woman says, I, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She's referring to one that they could see right there. It's like that mountain there, this mountain that's right here near us, is Mount Gerizim, which Moses, when he was on the other side of the Jordan, told the children of Israel, that mountain, part of you are going to go up on that mountain, and part of you are going to go up on Mount Ebal, and the folks on Mount Gerizim are going to scream out the blessings of God to his people and those on Mount Ebal will scream out the curses of God if you are not faithful to Him. So all of a sudden we've got, even in the mountain itself, there's, a, there's something going on, isn't there? Of the grace and the mercy of God, plainly visible to this woman. Now, we don't know a lot about her religion, but we do know this much. Here's a quotation from Deuteronomy 11 about the mountain. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. So here's God revealing himself to his people. And then John tells us Jacob's well was there. And remember, the woman says, this is Jacob's well. The father of the twelve 
patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel, was Jacob. It's his will that God gave him. The embodiment of the promises that God made to Moses when he said, you're going to have a son and through your seed, all the world is going to be blessed. The covenant promise that God made made to Abraham. And here is physical, a physical demonstration of that covenant promise. Because here I took care of Jacob, didn't I? I provided for him and his people and not just his people, his livestock as well. Did you catch that when she said that? So what we've got here is is there's a lot going on. Now, as a Samaritan, this woman practiced a religion that was rather different from the religion of the Jews in in Judea down to the south and Galilee, where our Lord was from up in the north. It's sandwiched in between. Her religion was primarily of the first five books of the Scripture, the five books of Moses. In fact, and we'll see a reference to this later, around 400 B.C., her direct ancestors had built a temple on top of Mount Gerizim. And then, about 128 years before this happened, this conversation with the Lord, the Jews destroyed that temple. So you can see not just the differences but the animosity between the two groups of people. All right. Now, this, this, in other words, this isn't just any old place where Jesus just meets this woman. It points us, as it pointed her, to the Lord Himself and to the promises that God had made His people. And it's far more significant than she knows at the beginning of that conversation. Now, she goes apparently every day to this well to gather water. It's half mile or so probably from the well to the town. We don't know exactly where she lived, but it was a walk. And she had to haul the water. So Jesus tells her something. She said, he says to her in verse 10, um, Yeah, I asked you for a drink. And if, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would say to him, Give me a drink. And he would have given you living water. Um, and she's puzzled at that point, isn't she? Uh, but you don't even have anything to draw out of the well with. What do, you, what do you think is going to happen here? How are you going to get a drink? And then here's the key question. Verse 12. Are you... Greater than our father, Jacob? What's this living water stuff? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? And then Jesus answers her. And again, in a, in a most indirect way. Every, verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the right question. Am is the one speaking to you greater than our father Jacob. Did you see the shift in the way the Lord's talking to her between the first little 
conversation about the living water to the second one. He said, if you ask him, he will give you. And then he says, if you ask me, I will give you. He's bringing her along. He's bringing her along in a way that she can understand. And he's basically saying, yes, Jacob was great, but I am greater. Do you catch him denying that he's greater than Jacob? No, he's making the he expands the promise. It's it's a it's a a marvelous thing that he says to her about the living water. And then he takes and she asks, are you greater than Jacob? He says, well, stick with me here and look at how much greater this promise really is. The water I will give him, 14, will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. All right, now we're talking about what's she going to do with that? She could just say pretty readily, I think I'll go home now. This man is not one that I want to hang around. He makes me nervous saying these wild things. Is he crazy? Our father Jacob is the greatest man I, never, I know. But, I, but what she does is not that. She thinks, is this possibly a work of God that is a fulfillment of of all those expectations, all those promises that I see displayed all around me in the geography of this place. One who would indeed come and fulfill all the promises of God to his people. So why does she stick with him? I guess that's the next question. Why? I think probably if you or I were around someone like this, we would go home at that point. But she doesn't. Because she's a needy woman. And in that need, and we'll take a closer look at that need in just a moment here. But because of that, she willingly considers his claim. Greater even than his father, Jacob. There's something about this Jewish man, Jesus. Something about him that leads her to consider that it might be true. You know, and as we look at him, Jesus still does that. There is something about him as we consider him in the scriptures, as we consider him, especially in the gospels, that simply causes us, if we're honest and we look hard and we wait patiently, we find that yes, this indeed is the one in our need, the one to whom we also ought to come and must come. One greater than Jacob. That's the first thing we see about this Lord Jesus. Now, how does he have the ability to satisfy her thirst? 
Now, we've already figured out because we read the whole passage that the Lord is not just talking about physical thirst here. In fact, far more than that. But she, at this point anyway, at, at verse 15, is asking him, uh, great, I won't have to come all this way to fetch water. So let me have this. May I please have this living water is what she asks him. Now, who does she remind you of at this point? He says, I'll give you living water that you'll for all eternity. And then she says, great, I won't have to come up here to this well anymore. I quoted from John three earlier at the, at the offering time. Doesn't she remind you of Nicodemus? Here's this great teacher who comes to Christ and says, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus says to him, you must be born again, born of the spirit. And Nicodemus says, come on, how can I go into my mother's womb again? Right. And Jesus, at this point in Nicodemus's life, says, basically nails him. He says, you call yourself a great teacher of Israel and you haven't got this figured out. So he doesn't let Nicodemus get away with that. But notice he's different with this woman. Totally different approach. Instead, he knows that she doesn't really get it yet, whereas Nicodemus ought to have gotten it. But not this woman. And he knows that she wants to know more. I mean, he's, he's figured that out. This is a needy woman, and she really does want to know more. So the Lord takes her one more step down this road. And he says, go get your husband. At this point, her spiritual blindness really does start to end. It's as if... We can see the light that John talked about in John 1 coming into this woman's heart and mind. In her darkness to this point, and now light shining into her. Because what is she now confronted with? She's confronted with the whole notion of her religion. She doesn't have it quite yet. But the Lord knows she needs to come to this point where she sees that she is lost in her sin. She's lost in her disobedience. Her darkness is spiritual because she is a sinner. So. She doesn't say to him, though, catch this, this is how we know she's she's feels guilty because does she say. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm living with a guy, so he's not really my husband. Is this the guy you want to see? No. She says, I have no husband. In her shame, because she knows that violates the seventh commandment, which is in her Bible, and which she has heard read on the Sabbath. She knows the law of God. So she knows that she's guilty. I have no husband. And then Jesus takes her another step. 
He says to her, you've had five husbands and the one you are with is not your husband. What's her response to that one? Verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, she uses this word knowing what it means. She uses this word prophet greater than Jacob. Now she's concluded the man's a prophet. A prophet brings God to his people, his words, his words of comfort, his words of judgment, but God's words nevertheless. And she sees this in him. She recognizes that he is one who is speaking the truth about her and her situation in a way that only God could know. So God must have given this man these words. That's all she can figure out. See, the greatest prophet she had known was Moses. Moses brought knowledge of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the God of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to his people. God, Moses, the great prophet, brought deliverance from slavery in Egypt. He brought God's judgment on the Egyptians. He showed Israel the love and provision of God for them. All of these things a prophet does, and she knew that. Moses brought the law of God to direct them and bless them. Remember the mountains. That prophet told them how to treat those mountains. That they might remember the love of God, the covenant mercies of God, Physically, right there. So all of this surely is flooding through her mind. She clearly needs someone who would bring her the comfort and love of God in face of her own disobedience. See, she, she recognizes her disobedience. And if God is going to speak to her, she needs someone to bring that comfort and love to her, and He has. Because surely her thirst for living water, the reason she's pursued this conversation instead of fleeing this man, came from the pain of her disobedience. Think about losing five husbands. Think of the pain of losing five husbands. Now, we don't, we don't know anything about her background. Perhaps some of them died. Surely... Some of them divorced her because divorce was rather easy for a man to accomplish in those days. Think of the loss, of the pain, the rejection, the feelings of unworthiness that surely she felt. Did she have children by any of those husbands? We don't know. Except that we do know she has suffered a great deal regardless her life has been extremely difficult. Sometimes because of the sin of others. Sometimes because of her own sin. And in this particular case, she is sinning with this man. Because after all, who wants to risk yet more rejection from yet another man by marrying him? A vow of commitment? 
that becomes so easily meaningless to her. But she knew it was wrong. How could God, she must have asked herself, accept one such as she? It was God's law she was violating. She is guilty before the most holy God of the universe. Yet, this man's Jesus seemed, Jesus seemed to have a knowledge that could only come from God. There's her hope. She was right. In her sin-darkened heart and mind, the light of God's love for a lost sheep penetrates the darkness. Could he help her know God? Could he make her right with God? This Jew who dared speak on equal terms with an unclean Samaritan woman. She realizes he's a prophet. She considers her own guilt. And then she changes the subject, apparently. She's getting all this. She's understanding it. And then, wait a minute. She asks Jesus another question unrelated to the water. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem is where we ought to worship. But note it's a spiritual question now. She's taken one step beyond the physical water. She's beginning to get it. Where are we supposed to worship? In Jerusalem or here? And Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. Indeed, that moment's come now. That moment is right here. He's making a, a, a fundamental, a baseline statement about God. A theological statement about God that's different from all she's heard to this point in her life. The physical presence of God on the mountain or in the temple in Jerusalem was what was important. And now that this man is telling her, nope, the one who's right here with you is the one you're going to worship. He is the one. Which leads to another question. We know the Messiah will tell us all things and how we're to worship him. And notice Messiah. The Apostle John tells us that it's the Greek word Christ, which simply means the anointed one sent from God. Like Moses promised back in Deuteronomy 18, where he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you will listen. So that prophecy was made of that anointed one. And she's hanging on to that and she's saying, wait a minute, the Messiah is going to teach us. And then what does Jesus say? I who speak to you am he. Verse 26. I who speak to you am that Messiah that Moses, the great prophet, promised you. She faces and sees herself and her guilt before God. She begins to understand this man, this man, Jesus. 
So what does she do with that on this this pilgrimage to know that Jesus is the Son of God who came that all who believe in Him might live forever? What does she do with that? What do we do with that? Here's what she did with it. Look at verse 42. All of this, you know, her, her, she can see it now. The love of God, yes, the judgment of God, yet God sent this one, this man. Verse 42. They said to the woman, this is her friends, and she told all about this. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the word world. It's not just you believe in. We believe. What did John say in verse in chapter 20? That you may believe. That you may trust in him whom God sent. She believed that he is her savior from her own disobedience, from her own sin, her deliverer. The one who fulfills all the promises made to the fathers. Now, she's one day she will understand how this all involves the cross, the obedience of our savior to his father to die on the cross. But now she worships the father with the grace of the Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth. God in Christ delivered this Samaritan woman from the consequences of her own sin and gave her living water. That's her spiritual progress. It's wonderful to see. Well, what exactly does John mean when he tells us in chapter 20 that you may believe? What did it mean that she believed? This, uh, I ran across this definition that, that says it in a pretty concise way. Because belief and faith as we're using them here, the same thing. Faith is the attitude whereby a man abandons all reliance on his own efforts to obtain salvation. Be they deeds of piety, of ethical goodness, or of anything else. It is the attitude of complete trust in Christ of reliance on Him alone for all that salvation means. See, our world uses the word faith in bizarre ways. Okay, Just bizarre ways. In fact, in recent dictionaries, if you look it up, it says faith is the irrational holding of ideas. There's no reason for them. But that's not what the Samaritan woman discovered, is it? She discovered this man, Jesus. This man 
greater than her father Jacob. Greater, a great prophet and now the Messiah who came to save her from her sins if she put her trust in him. To save her from the guilt. To save her, deliver her from the condemnation that is rightfully hers. The prophet come to expose sin and darkness who knows us. What do you do with Jesus? What have you done? What ought you do? That's the question for us this morning. Straightforwardly, do you believe? Have you put your trust in Him alone for forgiveness, for the living water that will swell up in you to all eternity? Greater than Jacob because he fulfilled all the covenant promises made to Jacob and the fathers. The prophet come to expose my sin and my darkness as well as yours. Because he knows us. We are open to him. A Messiah come to deliver from darkness to light by the cross. Please see how readily she comes to Him. Please see the love of the Lord Jesus is such that she, in the midst of her sin, comes to Him knowing that there is grace and there is mercy and she must come to that. Flees to Him. Knows him because he knows her. Wants to know more of him in all of his wonder, in all of his grace. The Lord Jesus elsewhere in Matthew 11 said it this way. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Boy, did this woman know that. And the promise of God to you this morning is the same. If you've never come to this Savior, come to Him now. Obey Him. Repent. Believe. Trust him alone because he comes ready. He's ready for you. He knows your heart and he's promised that all who come to him, he will never cast out. These are incredible promises. They're the wonderful promises of God on which each of us must rest. We can rest in no other. If you've never had this kind of faith. Come to Him, trust Him, and He will give you living water, springing up into eternal life. And you will never thirst again. 
After the benediction, we're going to sing a song, an, an oldie, a little different tune. There's so many wonderful lines in it. Please look at them in light of this Samaritan's woman's experience and see that Augustus Top Lady, when he wrote this, said, meant it when he said, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Please stand. Let's pray. Our Father, even as we come to you praising you and thanking you for all that you've done for us. We know that because you are risen and at the Father's right hand, you've also promised to hear our prayers. Please hear the prayers of those this morning in this place who don't know you this way. Give them hearts that reach out and rest in you alone, even as you've promised. Work powerfully, Holy Spirit, that you might have all the glory. And we pray for each other. Please help each of us to grow in that love for you that you've shown us. Help us to grow in our spiritual pilgrimage that we might always lean on you and honor you in what we do. Thank you for showing us yourself, for giving us the light that we need to live for you. And we pray, too, for our friends, especially those suffering now in our fellowship. For those who have recently lost loved ones, strengthen them and help them know that in you is true life. And we pray for our friends who are sick. We pray especially for Nathan Slater this morning as he's still in the hospital. Please heal him from the surgery and return him home very soon. And for our dear friend Lorraine Canistra, as she continues to try to recover and to regain her lost strength, help her and encourage her. And for Dale Robison, who's suffering from cancer, please heal. Our God, you know his need, and we ask you to work mightily in him. Our Father, we bring all of these to you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name. Amen.